In Christ and with Christ, we will have victory over death, so stand firm in faith and live with hope. My name is Gabriel, and my wife and I are both members here at WSBC. We've been members here for almost six years. It's great to be up here and fellowship with all of you. Last month, my grade three class, I'm a teacher, finished a unit on life cycles and traits of animals. It was one of those units that are pretty fun for a kid. We had caterpillars in the classroom, stinking up my classroom, changing into butterflies. We had tadpoles with kind of dirty water turning into frogs. And it just ultimately led to another mess that Mr. Omeda had to pick up. On the unit test for this unit, I had a question. What do all life cycles have in common? If you're thinking about birth and death, you are correct you can do third grade standards. All living creatures have a birth and they have an expiration. The life cycle is a neat way to package what a particular species life may look like. Birth, growth, reproduction, death, repeat. And it is also made more lighter in the famous song from the movie, The Lion King, The Circle of Life. That song's in my opinion, it seems like more shielding kids from the violent nature of the protagonist predators. But hear the lyrics. It's the circle of life. And it moves us all through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our place on the path unwinding in the circle of life. The life cycle does not explain the nature of an individual and the loftiness of these song lyrics they actually kind of lose meaning when you think of the hope of a lion or even the hope of its prey. Is it just one more day to last on this earth? That question becomes even more salient when pointed towards ourselves as we think about our individual selves in life. A friend told me that time is a marker of decay. We are born to wither away into death or sometimes in unfortunate circumstances a quick getaway from life. We are going to be exploring a very big question today on death. One that I feel all of us have asked seriously at different points in our lives. What happens after we die? Following that question will be another big question. In the face of death, is there hope in living? We are in Corinthians chapter 15 verses 35 to the end of the chapter. In the verses before verse 35, Paul concentrates on the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ as a fundamental part of the true gospel. It is an essential part of the Christian message. Living according to the gospel, it is necessary for their, the Corinthians, and our salvation. 
But undermining the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus is to change and lose the true gospel. That's the backdrop of the verses we are today, which he was talking specifically about the fundamental necessity of believing in the resurrection. We are now going to be reading about ourselves, what happens to our bodies. In our text today, the main point that we should take away from this reading is in Christ and with Christ, we will have victory over death, so stand firm in faith and live with hope. I will be organizing it into three points with an application from a familiar character in the Bible that we've been studying. First point is going to be our bodies after death, verses 35 through 42. Then our life journey, a curve, verses 43 through 49. Then lastly, our victory in Christ and with Christ, verses 49 to 58. You could think of it simply as our bodies, our life, our victory. Let's start with 35. You can turn in your Bibles or turn in the bulletin, which is on page 11. And our first point is our bodies after death. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Before I move on from this verse, when I read this, it seems like someone may be ridiculing the idea of resurrection from the Corinthian church. And even though this was stated during the ancient times, modern people raise this question as well in a similar fashion. When you read on, Paul's candidness actually surprised me. This is his response. You foolish person. Paul is complex. In one way, he could be so blunt as to call a person foolish. And the other way, he could be loving, like when he was in jail and the earthquake shattered the prison. And thinking all the prisoners left, the jailer was about to kill himself until Paul told him not to harm himself. In this case, Paul was more blunt. I believe Paul's straightforward approach here is intentional. Let's read the verses in their entirety. After he says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another the glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. The question at first was raised, how are the dead raised? is about process, and then of course what kind. Paul uses the image of a seed to show how even a physical object can be obliterated in its growth. The seed dies to come out something more glorious, the crop. A seed is sown, or in our language, buried, and then destroyed to bring forth a crop. He then talks about how the bodies of creatures are not the same so it is with this frame that we should think differently of our 
earthy bodies and our heavenly bodies. One is perishable, easily destroyed, and decaying, while the other is everlasting and glorious. Let's talk about these earthly bodies. All of us age, and the longer we are on earth, the more things tend to fall apart. It's interesting to think about the amount of life we want to squeeze out of our perishable bodies. It's almost as if our hope is to just keep on living. Atul Gawande, a surgeon and an author, writes about death, saying, as recently as 1945, most deaths occurred in the home. By the late 1980s, just 17% did. The 17 that stayed in their home, stayed in their home, but the rest actually shifted their death into hospitals to prolong that unknown. Then he also wrote about the hardest substance in our body. Do you know what that is? What's the hardest substance in our body? If you thought fingernails, you're not correct. If you thought bones, you're also not correct. If you're thinking the white enema in our teeth, there you go. The white enema from our teeth is the hardest substance. But with age, it nonetheless withers away, allowing the softer, darker layers underneath to show through. Experts say that they can gauge a person's age within the five years from the examination of a single tooth. Interestingly, as our teeth and our bones soften, other softer parts of our bodies harden, like blood vessels, joints, and the muscles and valves of the heart, due mostly to calcium buildup. Gawande wrote that when you reach inside an elderly patient during surgery, the aorta and other major vessels can feel crunchy under the fingers. I believe all of us have questioned what happens when we die because death is scary, uncomfortable, and a mystery. Even just reading about the process of aging makes me cringe. I sometimes feel at a loss. Brothers and sisters, let's take refuge in the bluntness of Paul's retort. When I was younger, I would work myself into a sweat thinking about death and the cessation of existence. Our earthly bodies are weak, fragile, and decaying, but our heavenly bodies will be different. A different glory from the stars, moon, and sun. A better glory. Some of you might be afraid of death. Some of you might be afraid of dying. And I believe all of us at some point will have this fear of, of hopelessness in the face of it. I think that's why Paul was so blunt when he said, you foolish person, because when we don't know what happens after death, Hope is lost. Faith is lost. And Christ at the center of our lives is no longer in our minds. We think about the now and trying to prolong our journey on earth. It is indeed foolish to see death as an end point without our communion with our Lord and Savior. Now let's look at the second point in verses 43 through 49 that show us a life journey. Instead of thinking of life in a cycle or a fading line, we can think of it as a curve. Let's read verses 43. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. 
it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust and is as is man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In the first section, there is a discussion between the difference between our physicality of earthly bodies and heavenly spiritual bodies. Apart from the fragility of our physical bodies, Paul notes how these bodies are sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, and bearing the image of man from dust, the first Adam. Not Adam, A-T-O-M, but Adam, A-D-A-M. Those words reflect the scripture in Genesis about how we bear God's image from the creation of the first man, Adam. Yet Adam was weak and eventually left Eden in dishonorable circumstances. If you're able to, let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. We are of this same ilk and humanness. We are of dust. Then in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We are from the dust, and then we return to the dust. And this is where the world stops thinking where it's the typical view of death in the world today. It's in the refrain, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. In a TV show I was watching recently, a character asked a friend, how's life? Then the friend replied, like everyone else's life, subject to entropy, slow to decay, and eventual death. That's bleak. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us in this disrepair. In our resurrected bodies after death, we will be raised in glory, raised in power, raised in a spiritual body, and bearing the image of God, the second Adam, contingent upon our faith in Christ. The second Adam is a life-giving spirit, and who might this be? We joke with the kids in the Gospel Project, the little ones over there, that when you don't know the answer, you could always just say, Jesus Christ! And today it is the correct answer. In this case, yes, the second Adam is the life-giving, sacrificing spirit of Jesus. When we look at the contrasting atoms and the juxtaposition between life and death, we see a curve. Right now, I've been reading a lot of authors, and they've been using this idea of the J-curve to explain this. But no matter how you are using either the J-curve or just the curve, it's a curve upwards. We die in dishonor, we're moving down, but we are raised up in glory to emulate the curve in our true lives, a life with Jesus raising us up. This mirrors the gospel as Jesus came down as a man bearing the first image of the first Adam, a man of dust. And then he died. 
then miraculously and written in prophecy, he was resurrected. People did recognize him, but he was different. Jesus was raised in glory. And through this sacrifice, he has raised us in the glory with the condition of placing our faith in him. Why is it wonderful to be in Christ, made like him through faith in him? In Christ, we are made alive. And because resurrection from our in-Adam death comes through him, as we are picked up from death, we will also bear the image of the man in heaven. That's a wonderful thought, considering that entropy or the chaotic nature of dust and dust and dust particles and our decaying bodies. It's nice to think that we'll be raised up in glory. That's why I said in Christ, we have victory over death. You're probably wondering why I also said the other preposition, with Christ. Let's move on to the third point. Let's go back into the scriptures and read verses 50 to 58, which Paul closes this section with a really beautiful encouragement to us all. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Let's stop there. I like how Paul tells us that this is a mystery. In a book I've read before called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, Sproul remarks on how the word mystery is sometimes confused with contradiction. There are three words in the English language that are related but often confused. Contradiction, paradox, and mystery. The Bible only deals with two of the three. The Bible does not deal with contradiction, which is a thing that said it is something, but it in no way can be the thing it claims. A paradox seems at first like a contradiction, but upon further examination, it can be resolved. This chapter seems to be dealing with a paradox about how an earthly body can enter heaven after it has withered. Yet Paul helps us understand that it is just a paradox. We can resolve it with his argument about the heavenly body which will be different in glory and physicality. This brings us to mystery. A mystery, in the words of Sproul, refers to that which is true, but which we do not understand. When we read, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, at the last trumpet, we are brought to the idea of the second coming of Christ. This verse has some debate because it is a mystery. And we're not going to get into that today. But our takeaway as a congregation should be that believers in Christ shall all be changed when reuniting with our Savior. Let's read on in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death 
is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul is clear in these last few verses about our application and the way we ought to think about death. It's simple. Death is sin, and the sting of death is in the law. Christ died for us so that he would be judged on behalf of us with the law. In my point, I said, in Christ and with Christ, we will have victory over death. With Christ as our propitiation on our life's mission, we will have victory over death. So what does that mean for us today? By the looks of it, we're not dead. We're very much alive. What should we do now until our final departure? Paul tells us, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That brings us to the last half of the main point. Stand firm in faith and live with hope. We are to stand firm in our faith, not letting anything stop us, placing our faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. Standing firm in the doctrine of the resurrection will change how we live. We will not live for ourselves and for the moment. We live for the future and be willing to give up anything in order to work for God whose presence we will enjoy beyond death. If today you are a believer in the resurrection, Paul is our ultimate cheerleader, helping us to keep hope alive. Our works are not in a labor in vanity. Our stresses, our problems, our anxieties, our frustrations, our confusions, and our endless self-effacement is not for nothing. A great example of this labor and steadfastness is seen in Ruth. Ruth's steadfast, immovable, and abounding work of the Lord is her commitment to loving Naomi unconditionally. Recently, our brother Mako finished his series on the book of Ruth. And I also just finished one of my favorite books this year called A Loving Life by Paul E. Miller. So I found it prescient to bring back this wonderful example. Ruth displays a type of faith that is one-sided and utterly sacrificial, which Miller translates with a Hebrew word, hased love. This is found in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8, when Naomi blesses her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, saying, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. You have dealt with the dead and me. When Naomi says, deal kindly with you, it is the word hesed. In Miller's definition, hesed is one-way love. Love without an exit strategy. When you love with said, love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter the responses. We know that Orpah actually leaves, but Ruth stays with Naomi. Naomi then responds in silence. Ruth has just given up her life in an incredible act of selfless love, said love. Miller writes, love can be lonely. It does not remain so but that is often where it does its best work. 
The greatest acts of love are almost always hidden. As your face, your hands, and your heart begin to look like Jesus, people will notice Him in you. They are always drawn to Him. Ruth's labor was not in vain. Her love was not in vain. And God redeemed her. And He will redeem us in the end. Stand firm in faith and live with hope, brothers and sisters. Today, if you are not a believer in this resurrection, then I would like to ask you, what does hope mean to you? In our society, hope has become one of those words that has completely lost its original meaning. Languages change over time. That's a fact. Like the word awful, which used to mean amazing. So I wish I would have picked this as the song today, but I wasn't that prepared. But when we sing the song, How Awful and Sweet is the Place, it sounds weird in today's language because awful seems to be distasteful or not good. But without the knowledge that awful means filled with awe, it's, it's like weird. So when we, when we read it back with the original meaning, how awful and sweet is the place, that's more beautiful. Hope is like that. Hope means to expect something that you want to happen will happen. Nowadays, we use hope to mean that we want something to happen, but we expect the worst. I'll give you an example. Like when my wife is eating dinner with her friends and she's out, and she hopes that I will eat something healthy when she's in there. If you know me, you all know me, I'm gonna go get that home sliced pizza. Also, many of us have said in the past, I hope I don't get COVID. You might get it. Hope used to be deeper, a more encouraging word. Paul encourages us to put our hope and our faith in Christ. Our God is not the God of wishful thinking. He is the God of fulfilled promises. So today, if you do not believe in this resurrection as reality, please consider talking with someone who knows about this original meaning of hope and the driver of their life and ask them about their hope in Christ. Let's circle back to the song lyrics from The Lion King, The Circle of Life. I'm going to read it one more time. Definitely not sing it, though. It's the circle of life, and it moves us all through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our place on the path unwinding in the circle of life. Wow. Those are beautiful words, but they are ultimately meaningless. They are meaningless because there is no specific hope. What exactly is the hope of Simba? Faith and love. Nala has faith in what? And the real transformation after death is a race. I keep thinking about this. What's with the lions not eating Timon and Pumbaa? These words are utterly foolish. And I think that's why Paul says it this way. It's foolish. Now let's read Paul's words again. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. At Concordia, that's the school I, work, I used to work at, a question was raised to all the students on the last day of school. Do you believe this day is a hopeless end? Or do you believe today is the beginning of endless hope? What do you think? In Christ and with Christ, we will have victory over death. So stand firm in faith and live with endless hope. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, that we have been saved from death, from the clutches of death as being sin, that he took our place, and that you have judged him with our sins. We thank you for Jesus' act to raise us up and redeem us. We pray that this moves us now that our work is not in vain and that we can continue being steadfast, immovable, and strong in our faith today. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.